Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So very excited. We we have today a founder, actually. We're gonna be learning quite a bit, you know, from going to one of the biggest companies that we can think of, Google, to now really doing something super remarkable. I think we're gonna be learning, you know, what we like to hear about, which is building, scaling, financing, and all the above. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Cesar Segupta. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. It's really exciting to be with you and with the great uh, DealMakers audience. Looking forward to this conversation. Likewise, likewise. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up in India, in Delhi? Uh, life was uh, fun. It was hectic. It was a fairly traditional uh, middle-class Indian upbringing, you know, very focused on education, uh, very focused on sort of either trying to become an engineer or a doctor, as, you know, many of us growing up in emerging markets probably are familiar and associate with. Now, in your case, I mean, very interesting because not only you, I mean, you you definitely did it with flying colors. I mean, you attended some of the best schools in the world, uh, but obviously, you know, also worked for one of the best companies in the world. So I'm sure that you made your, your parents very proud, really accomplishing, you know, all the, because I know that in India, you know, there is a, this pressure to become, you know, like an engineer or a doctor or, you know, it's incredible. No, it's it's in the culture, which I think is great. Uh, and, and by the way, there's so many incredible uh, entrepreneurs coming from India because they have the technical side and the business side all combined, which is obviously your case, too. But but in this case, you know, at what point do you realize that you wanted to come to the U.S.? I think for me, it wasn't just about the U.S. It was really about getting deep into computer science. And so once I was, um, when I was in my engineering school, I actually started off majoring in electrical engineering. But then somewhere through, came across computer science programming and just absolutely fell in love with that. So I thought I wanted to do a PhD, wanted to go to grad school and basically be doing research all my life. So that's what basically made me look for universities in the U.S. and land up at, uh, in California. So you went to Stanford, uh, is the land of innovation. You know, it's literally everywhere. I mean, some of the best entrepreneurs, they've come out of there. Uh, so you see it, you know, it's people in the coffee shops, you know, pitching other VCs, uh, their ideas, sharing, collaborating. Why didn't you really take the chance? Because, I mean, it has taken you quite a little bit, you know, like you've done, you know, the MBA, you went to Google. What do you think took you so long? That's a great question. I mean, I did take a chance during Stanford. I dropped out for a semester. I mean, it's fashionable to drop out for a semester from Stanford. Oh, you know? yeah. Yeah, and start try doing a company. It didn't work out. I came back to grad school. But then right after I came back, uh, my life took a very different turn. I ended up meeting this wonderful woman uh, who I've now been married to for 20 years. And she was bonded to the Singapore government and wanted to move back. So, you know, I finally managed to... Uh, I followed her through her career, got a chance to get back onto my career, and now um, this was the best time to get going with Arta. So, you know, it took some time, but, you know, in, in, in India, there's a saying, which is, it's good to finally happen, even if it happens late. You know, it's, oh, it's, yeah. it's a lot. Better, better, better late than never, eh? as oh, they say exactly. here. Exactly. Better late than That's never. It. That's it. Now, 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 in your case, you know, when you moved to Singapore, 
uh, basically there is when you, you know, got into the whole startup world. So what was that like? It was exciting. Uh, you know, I worked for, I was a very early employee in one of the startups called Incentuate that eventually got acquired by IBM. And uh, I was very fortunate that my boss at that time, the founder, actually allowed me to do a ton of stuff across the company. So I was I was technically an engineer building server-side stuff, but I could do marketing, sales, and that kind of really got me exposed to, uh, you know, the whole wild world of everything you need to do to really create a company. You know, you can't go creating a company and just saying, I'm going to be an engineer. Some days you've got to like uh, basically take out the trash. Some days you have to like sell your product. You basically have to do everything as an entrepreneur. So it was great training for me at that point in time. So obviously, you know, with this, you moved to London, you know, you, you were doing, you know, a little bit of, of, of the startup world, but then eventually you ended up deciding that it's time for an MBA. So what do you think triggered that? A part of it was, um, you know, as I got in that startup, as I really got into doing marketing and sales, um, I kind of felt I needed a little bit more of a, a theoretical as well as a sort of background as well as some training. And, um, yeah, it was a good time. It felt like a good step to do. And I actually really enjoyed my MBA. And it got to it got me exposed to a side of the world around finance, around marketing that was very different from my traditional engineering and technical training. And uh, obviously in Wharton, you know, I, I mean, funny enough, I didn't mention this to you, but I've been guest lecturing there for over 10 years. Uh, you know, Professor Tyler Rye, he teaches entrepreneurship and yeah. I've been going there to do it. And, 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 and it's just remarkable, the community there. Uh, now, you know, it's interesting because most of the people, I mean, so many of them, you know, go into investment banking, consulting. In your case, you go to Google. And, you know, you've been at Google. I mean, before you started the company, it was like a 14-year run. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what do you think kept you for so long? What was that future that you were living into that made it exciting every single year when, you know, you decided, you know, I want to keep going? I think a couple of things. I mean, Google, look, is a very special company. It's one of those unique uh, ecosystems and environments that gets created only once in a generation. So when I joined, you know, it, was a, it was a place where you could just create and you had the resources and the tools to be able to create incredible products. So a lot of what kept me going at Google was this opportunity to build new products, work with phenomenal people. Um, one of the people I got to work very closely with is currently Alphabet CEO, Sundar Pichai. He was my manager at that time. And the group he had built around him was just, you know, full of people who were way smarter than me. And so for me, it was like, wow, I get to hang out with these people and build new products and they even pay me for it. So it was, you know, all win-win. So I stayed, um, you know, every few years, every few years I would look up and say, should I do a startup in a way like, you know, like every other person in tech, I keep thinking like at some point, should we do a startup? And somehow Google would create an opportunity to build a new product, to learn something new, and to just expand my horizons. And that kept me going for, for a pretty long time. And what did you learn? I mean, you, you were alluding to it. I mean, Sundar Pichai, I mean, the CEO of, of Alphabet, I mean, unbelievable uh, leader. So what do you think you learned from him when he came to leadership? I think one of the biggest thing I learned from him um, was how much he cared about individuals and specific people and how sort of he would 
sponsor and find people and there are a number of examples like this across Google very early in their careers. Give them incredible opportunities. You know, almost let them screw up at times. And even when they screwed up, he would sort of support them and help them along. And that, in fact, in many ways, created this massively loyal following around him, right? And th these people then went on to like do everything they could to, you know, fulfill Sundar's vision. I mean, he's a fantastic product visionary. But as you know, like being a product visionary is not enough if you don't have a great team and a great culture and a great organization that can fulfill that for you. So what made, for example, for you 2021 different? You know, that was the time where you decided to take action on Arta. And, and what made it different, you know, for you to say, you know what, I think right now is the time for me to take on this problem and to bring this company to life. That's a great question. I think there are a few different factors. Uh, first, on a personal basis, um, you know, I'd been leading fintech at Google for a while, and I started coming to the conclusion that the governments of the world, the regulators of the world, just were not ready for big tech companies to go deeper into finance. You know, they, they were starting to basically uh, put boundaries around what big tech, what they were comfortable with big tech doing. And so from a professional perspective, I could see that. On a, another personal side, like I could kind of see that, uh, you know, if I didn't do it now, like it would, it might just get too late. And the last thing, which is really interesting was there was a particular idea we've been playing with, which is this whole, how do we unlock these financial superpowers for the, for that the ultra wealthy have for everyone. And we've been thinking about this for a while, but, you know, AI and machine learning got to the point where we felt like it was kind of possible within a few years. You know, it didn't feel completely out of realm of um, what could not be done. So I think these three factors, there was one from like, okay, you know, a push from Google. There's an internal desire to get going across our team. We have eight co-founders. We have 30, 30, 35 people who founded Arta together. Um, and then really the technology and the timing seemed really right for going and trying to build a digital family office in the world. Now, in, in this case, I mean, super interesting, um, you know, what you guys are doing. I think that for the people that are that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of Arta? How do you guys make money? I mean, it's very standard, you know, in this model where you're managing other people's assets, you're helping other people build a financial future. Um, you can charge as a percentage of AUM and as you create value for them, you know, people are happy to share fees with you or a percentage of that value you create. And so depending on whether you invest in AI managed portfolios, you know, we'll take an AUM or you can give us a performance fee. Um, in certain other cases where we unlock private investments, for example, private equity, private capital or venture capital investments for, you know, regular people, um, we'll take a fee on that. And similarly for different different services that we offer as a digital family office. Now, one thing that is very interesting here is the way that you activated your network, because how, how, how much capital have you guys raised to date for the company? We've raised uh, slightly over 90. Over 90 million. And one thing that is true is, I mean, uh, this is this is something that everyone knows. I mean, so many super successful founders that are right now making a killing, they came out of Google. They were employees in Google. And one thing that I find really interesting is that in your case, you've raised money from like over 80 people, you know, many individuals that, you know, are part of the Google ecosystem. So how do you go about kind of like activating that network, you know, super powerful network 
to bring them on board and to get them excited about the future that you were living into with Arta? I think a couple of things. First of all, I mean, um, uh, you know, we have 140 angel investors and all of them were people we had worked with. Everyone we either had worked with inside Google or they were partners uh, that we were working with outside. Um, and when the set of us, that are eight co-founders of Arta, when we decided to leave and we started talking to people about it, one of the interesting things that two things we found was first, the vision that we had for Arta really resonated with most of these people. Because they've all lived that life. They all wish that they could have got some of these financial superpowers when they were in their 30s rather than having to wait till, you know, later in their career when they had you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to, to be able to avail of these, uh, these financial superpowers. The second thing was for many of them, they just, they just wanted to support us and help us and be part of this long journey. So for what was really, you know, humbling for me and heartening for me was for many of them, it wasn't. It purely an investment. It was more like we want this vision to come to life and we want to see you guys and help you guys make this vision come to life because this is going to have an impact on so many people. And so that sort of brought the group together. And that community has actually been incredibly helpful. Like over the last year and a half as we've gotten going, giving us advice, connecting us to the right people, um, you know, at, at times giving us hard feedback on things we were doing wrong. And Finally, at this point now, like, you know, many of them are starting to use the product and give us feedback on how to make it better. So it's been really incredible to have this in amazing community of people um, who, you know, we in many ways helped us found Arto. And I mean, incredible individuals. I mean, we're talking about Eric Schmidt, you know, who was the CEO of Google. I mean, you got Jeff Dean, you know, one of the biggest rock stars when it comes to engineering in Google. Uh, unbelievable people. How do you go about using them in the most effective way to get their help as investors into the business? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And to be, to be absolutely honest, I, I, I don't think we're doing a very good job of it yet. Um, but what we've done is, for example, for different people, we would often go to them for specific types of advice. So Eric, yeah, you know, he's known as a, as a business leader, but Eric is also a computer science professor and very, very like one of the best computer science thinkers. So we went and reviewed our AI managed portfolios and the AI behind it and machine learning with him in a way as if I would have done it when I was at Google. You know, I would take products for Eric to review and he would review both the business side as well as the technical side of it. And uh, we've done reviews like that with Eric, with people like Jeff, with a number of other people um, on different parts of the idea, different business businesses we've reached out to um, our investors for connections into, uh, into partners, uh, or to how to structure business deals. And, you know, we sort of have a internal, um, I almost keep an internal sheet of all of our angels with their skill sets and anyone on the team, when they need a particular set of help or advice can tap into that. And then I'll pull in the right invest, right angels and get a group going together to think about how we can apply that experience. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either 
knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Incredible. Now, you know, I guess one thing that probably people that are listening that are wondering is, how do you manage egos when you have eight co-founders? How do you do that? So, you know, a big part of um, why we ended up starting the company together is because we've all worked together for over 10 to 15 years. And you can't work with people who have big egos if you're, you know, for 10 to 15 years when they, if things don't work out. I mean, we're a team. We're a team that have played together for a very long time. And in many ways, um, not only are we colleagues, we are friends. And so being able to work with each other was a very big value proposition around our talk. Now, one thing that uh, that I like to ask you here is, how are you guys thinking about, you know, if, if, if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of the company is fully realized, what does that world look like? That's a great question. Um, you know, somebody told me, uh, in just one of our, one of our very early users, uh, we actually have some of our early users come in and talk to the whole team. Um, about their experience. And they said, and we asked them, like, why are you excited about Arta? And he said, one of the reasons he's most excited is because it's money is one of these things that is always around us, but we don't know how to talk about it. And we don't know how to use it. And often by the time we learn about all the powerful aspects in which we can apply it, it's kind of a bit late in our lives. I mean, I can tell you from my chapter, if like I could go back and teach all the things I know now to my 35 year old self, you know, it would be a, it would be a, 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 a much more amazing, um, amazing future we could create. And so the future that I envision like with Arta is a future where many of the modern advances of financial services or financial technology can truly be available to everyone. If you think about it today, the world feels very unfair because as you become richer and richer, more things become available to you. It becomes easier for you to put your money to work. It becomes easier for you to avail of all these financial superpowers. And why should that be the case? I mean, a large part of it is because these are very services-based industries. You know, it's not technology-driven, so it can't truly be democratized. When you, when, when, a, when an 18-year-old kid in Nigeria uses Google, they get the same service as, you know, a billionaire using it in the Valley. So why shouldn't that be the same for all, all of financial services. So that's ultimately what we're trying to do is create a world where these financial superpowers are truly available to everyone. So you may be graduating out of college and you know you have maybe saved up $1,000 and you want to put it to work. 
maybe you really believe in particular uh, in a private company and you should be able to invest in it. Maybe you would just want to deploy it into the market and now you should be able to use the best of AI, the best of quantum, quantum mathematics to be able to invest it. Why should you not be able to do that? So that's ultimately what, what we're trying to do is bring these financial superpowers to everyone in the world. And I mean, you were calling this, you know, basically a digital family office type of experience. Now, for the people that are listening, you know, like having, you know, and, and to what you were saying of of the barrier to entry for having a family office, I mean, it's pretty high. I mean, we're talking about people that have made at least 50 million bucks yeah. that have the capability of paying the salaries of like crazy, you know, investment managers that they, it's just going to cost them millions just in salaries alone every year. Uh, and here, basically, what you guys are doing is, not only disrupting it, but and, and giving access to having, you know, your own digital family office to everyone, just like you were saying, like even to someone in Nigeria. But now, you know, you're able to to also bring it online, you know, which is a pretty remarkable uh, transition here. So what does the experience look like? So imagine I am someone in Nigeria, like you were saying, like, how can I use Arta and make the best out of it? What does that experience look like? Yeah. Uh, so the, the, the comment of someone in Nigeria was a very, was a long-term vision. We want to get yeah. global. Yeah, right yeah, now yeah, yeah. we're licensed in the U.S. So let's say somebody in the U.S. and, you know, somebody who's been working in a, in a tech company for a few years has saved up uh, maybe a couple of hundred thousand dollars and they're putting it to work in, in a market. What, what, what we would do for them is they would come log into the app or the website and essentially now they can deploy their money either into stocks bonds and assets and instead of them having to manage it or you know pay somebody a very high fee to create a portfolio for them they can avail of our ai managed portfolios which will use the latest quantum uh, quant mathematics as well as a lot of machine learning to create the right optimized portfolio for them and manage it for them automatically at a very low price. So you kind of get like the pricing of a robo-advisor of an ETF with the sophistication of having your own investment manager. At the same time, if this person is an accredited investor or a qualified client or a qualified purchaser, these are all like conditions set by the SEC, you know, they can invest in private equity or in private credit or in venture capital or at some point later in the year into private companies. Um, or for example, at some point we will bring them and connect them with the right kind of tax advisors so that they can set up their finances in a way that is most tax optimized for them. They can create, get these insurance plans that the ultra wealthy use not only to create better futures for their families, but also to create wealth in their current life. And so we can set them up in an automated way. And the, the online part of it is very important because the reality is without this being a digital experience, it is not possible. It is not possible to bring it to millions of people. So that's actually the critical piece that technology can actually help us take these exclusive services and truly democratize it for many, many, many people. And machine learning's finally got to the point where it's applicable at scale across, across the space. I love that. Now, for you guys, I mean, the growth has been pretty impressive. I mean, you guys in the last year, you know, you've re you, you've grown by over 80% the employee count. I mean, tremendous growth. How do you go about making sure that things don't break when it comes to culture? That's a great question. Um, so first of all, look, the core team, um, a, a large part of the team that started this, I think about 30, 35 people in the founding team, um, they were all 
we all came from a very similar sort of upbringing. We all built Google Pay together. Uh, many of them built Chrome OS before that together. So there was a certain culture that we brought with us. So that makes for the core culture. And then very early on in our life, uh, we actually wrote up a culture doctrine. We wrote up a culture doc and said, these are the virtues and the principles that we are going to abide by. And we actually published it very openly. In fact, for a year, we were in stealth mode till November. And the only document you could find about us that was not a company, you know, high-level company website was our culture doc. And we used this as a way to like signal to candidates that this is the culture that we want to create. So if this is not the type of place you're looking for, you shouldn't be here. Uh, and at the same time, it also acted as a great uh, attraction for people who look were looking for that culture. So that was the first part. The second thing is we've had a very transparent and open culture internally. We want to discuss not just about how we're doing things, but about the culture itself and how we evolve it. So on a regular basis on our internal Slack, you will see these discussions happen. You know, we have our company all hands. We actually talk about culture. We talk about what is the kind of company we want to build. Like today, we are 75 people, but at some point in the future, if there are like 700 people or 7,000 people, we are the ones who are setting the culture for them. And so what is the kind of world that we want to create for them? What is the kind of organization we want to create for them uh, is a topic that's actually pretty top of mind for most of us. Now, one thing that uh, that I'd like to ask you here is, you know, as, as, as you're talking about it too, you know, the, 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 the amount of co-founders that you guys were, also the backgrounds, you know, coming from Google, I guess, you know, the technical side of things, you know, you guys were mastering that. So how, as part of this culture too that we're talking about, how do you make sure that there is a nice balance between the technical and the business side so that, you know, it's equal? Oh, that's a great question. So a couple, a few of our founders actually are very deep in the business side. Um, one, of, one of my co-founders, Felix Lin, this is his fourth startup. He took his first startup public in 2001. It was a company called Lavantco. At that wow. point, it was a major, major IPO. And then his second startup, he sold to another company, and then he joined Google. And, you know, we worked together for the last 14 years. Another startup actually ran a bunch of algorithmic hedge funds. And he comes from deep within the finance quant world, right? Like the really, really high end of finance, really sophisticated uh, investors. And so these guys tend to bring in that that aspect. And then within the company, we've actually hired people from Goldman Sachs, from BlackRock, from you know Blackstone, from a lot of the finance and the the business sides, as well as uh, we've we've sort of explicitly gone and looked for people who can round out the experience set. Um, we hired um, our legal counsel very early, somebody who had worked at Schwab and Robinhood and really understood investing, understood the the markets incredibly well. So we've been very mindful and deliberate about trying to create a culture that is strong on the technology side but strong on the finance and the business side too. And for the people that are listening, to get an idea on the scope and size of the operation of Arta today, anything that you can share that you feel comfortable sharing, like maybe number of employees or anything else? So I mean, we aren't yet ready to share the specifics. I think we just got going in November. Uh, we opened up to, to people on the wait list. Um, there's a fairly long wait list. We're starting to bring people off the wait list. And now it's just a question of like, how well do we serve them? And uh, how do we sort of make the products better? A couple of things that we did publish was uh, around the performance, the 15-year backtest of our AI-managed portfolios. Because in the world of financing, too many people do hand-waving stuff. And we wanted to basically put the data out there and let individuals make, make up their mind about what the performance is, how it's going, 
you know, um, all the places that we've done things well and not done well. Now, imagine if I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time to that moment where maybe maybe you were you were wondering, you know, like if it made sense to start a company or not. And I'm sure that you've had that that thinking, you know, multiple, multiple times, not just when you decided to take action on Arta. But imagine, you know, if you were able to go back in time and have a chat with that younger self and being able, having that opportunity of being able to give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? That's a great question. Uh, Alejandro, your questions are fantastic. Thank um, you. I think the I think the biggest advice I'd probably give myself is to get started earlier. I think I, um, I, 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 the amount I've learned in the last year and a half, not just about business and building products, but about myself, like the personal journey as an entrepreneur, I mean, and you're an entrepreneur, so you, you understand this. There's an incredible journey you have to walk on the personal side and internally. And, um, you know, it's, it's been a very enriching time. There have been times where I have liked what I've found on that journey. There have been times where I've not liked what I've found. And I wish I could have set out on that journey earlier. Uh, and so that's the only thing I would tell that, tell that younger self, like, just do it. Get going. It. You'll be fine. That's it. It would always work out. It would always work out. I love it. I love it. So for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? I think they can reach out on Twitter, at Caesar S, on LinkedIn, um, you know, and would love, love to hear from them. Amazing. Well, Cesar, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much, Alejandro. It's been really fun talking to you. You've, uh, you've made me think a lot. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.